future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is a Monday. You know what that means. Here we are on Out the Coop Live. Yes, it is Monday, March 21st, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Out the Coop Live. This is, of course, Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out the Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards from across the country. On our Friday show, of course, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And check out the Wednesday show with Cyril Michaleko. Cyril is a progressive columnist from the Bucks County Courier Times and the Intelligencer. And now, of course, also a columnist at the Bucks County Courier, I'm sorry, at the Bucks County Beacon. There you go. Way to go, Cyril. That's a weekly column. It's fantastic. We've got the progressive media blooming here in Bucks County. Each month, Cyril joins me to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbeans, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And make sure, look, you're over there on your kind of Apple podcast. Leave us a review. Give us that five-star review that helps everybody find the show. And you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month or ten bucks a month. You know, it's like a good beer once a month. Come on. You know, a little support of progressive media. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you'll know every time that we go live. You can hop on our Discord server as well. Information on that is in tonight's show notes. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern, his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. You know, anywhere you're going to find streams, you're going to find Rick at 9 p.m. Eastern. All right, subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. And head on over to thericksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms, including his show at WBAI in New York, um, KPFK in Los Angeles. You get the, You get the idea. And if you haven't already, you got to check out season two of the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. You know, make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. Attention gamers, the Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quaker Town based black family owned gaming store. They're friends of the show and they've got everything for retro N64s to the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops. You got it. And look, kids come in with A's on the report card, they get a discount. I mean, come on, you can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page, follow them at Twitter at, at The Game In. If you got a question about a game, look for something that's hard to find. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at Songadayman, again with two N's. That's at Songadayman on Twitter. Well, on tonight's episode of Out to Coop Live, I am thrilled to be joined by William Horn. 
William is an Arthur J. Ennis Pactor. Pact oh, I always get this. You know what? Well, I had a trouble when I was applying for postdocs. I had the same kind of thing. I could never get this word out of my mouth. <laughs> Anyways, he's an Arthur J. Ennis postdoc. I'm just going to say postdoc because it's going to make it a lot easier for me. Fellow at Villanova University who writes about the relationship <laughs> between race to labor, freedom, and capitalism after the Civil War. He holds a PhD in history from the George Washington University and is co-founder and editor of the Activist History Review. He is also the co-editor with Nathan Wurtenberg of the book uh, Demand the Impossible, Essays in the History as, of, as Activism. And we'll be talking about his recent article tonight in Truthout called, quote, The legal phase of fascism has begun. Threats of white vigilante violence are real. And we'll also check out about how history provides little comfort if we expect recent uptick in white supremacy and authoritarianism simply to fade away by themselves. You can check out um, all his stuff uh, with the links in tonight's show notes, his Truth, Truthout article, and the direct link to the Activist History Review. Welcome to the show. William. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's great to have you. And I think, and like I said to you a little bit before we got on the air tonight, it's like, well, I was thrilled to see your piece because this is an, these are issues that you raise in your article um, in Truthout um, that we've been kind of digging into and having to deal with quite a bit here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Uh, but, you know, just a little that backdrop, you know, if you look at Pennsylvania, we had the second largest number of individuals who went to the January 6th insurrection, right, in the country. And Bucks County, where I live, was the number one county in the state of Pennsylvania that sent people down there. And our school boards have been exploding. So to see your article, I think, was, you know, right on point, especially as we start looking forward to the midterms and actually organization and organizing kind of moving forward. But before we dive into that, um, give us a little sense of how, like, kind of where's your, where, how you're kind of coming at this piece. Is this kind of like part of what you do in, in your research and so on. And then I want to talk a little bit about the activist history view before we jump into your articles. Give us a little kind of such of your background and kind of what you're working on. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think that does give a good uh, overview of, you know, what it seems like is going on, not only in Bucks County, but, you know, in a lot of our uh, localities. Uh, unfortunately, I've been in touch yeah. with uh, a lot of people uh, from school boards, even even teachers who are dealing with threats on a regular basis. Um, I was talking to one of my friends the other day, uh, his partner is a nurse. Um, and he was saying like, you know, they know a lot of nurses, right, that want to leave because of the, the anti-vax stuff, right? And I know a lot of teachers, right, who want to leave uh, teaching, right, because they, we, we need these people, right? right. These, these are, you know, truly essential workers as, as far as, um, you know, the, the well-being of our society, right? Um, and so I just want to say, you know, like, shout out to all of our teachers here who are having to deal with stuff that none of us went to school to figure out or to sign up, you know, for. Um, it's a lot, right, uh, yeah. but y'all are doing important work. Um, yeah, so this this piece is, I guess, kind of like a, an outgrowth of my research uh, a little bit. So I do uh, research white backlash movements um, and also black liberation movements and the relationship between them. Um, you know, and so as I'm kind of observing, as many of us are, um, this white backlash that we are living through, right, um, especially after the George Floyd protests, mm -hmm. um, but also in the wake of President Biden's election, um, you know, I'm thinking through these sort of earlier iterations of white supremacy um, and uh, the racist laws that governed our country um, for, you know, the better part of a century uh, after Reconstruction um, and through the civil rights movement. Um, you know, and I, I hear a lot of people say, you know, we're a different country now and, you know, we've moved on or this sort of thing couldn't happen here or couldn't happen anymore. And that is 100% um, what people thought at the time that these laws were passed 
uh, during Reconstruction and Jim Crow, especially the Jim Crow era laws, uh, very, very similar to the state level laws that we see restricting voting, restricting uh, protest rights, restricting education, um, very, very similar movements um, led by similar people, to be honest. I mean, yeah. the UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy is involved in our um, anti so-called anti-CRT uh, laws, just as they were involved in, in education um, suppression uh, during the Jim Crow era. It's, it's unfortunate to see we've been here before. We do not want to go here again. 100%. And I think that, and I want to really dig into this too, because th that is, I think, the key point that kind of, you know, maybe kind of reach out to you here too, as well in this piece. We're going to say, look, it, we, you know, it's a cliche, right? We study history so we don't repeat the errors of that, you know? Sure. But here you go, right? I mean, one of the lessons that I think has to be learned front and center here is these things do not just fade away by themselves, right? right. Um, and if you let them fester, right, they metastasize, right? And yeah. they only grow and they get stronger. But look, before we jump into it too, um, let me know a little bit. I mean, I love, I've been kind of going through this journal now that you're mm -hmm. also kind of co-founder and editor of, uh, the Activist History View. Can you tell us a little about, about that journal, um, what got it started and what you see is the focus of it. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, the goal is a kind of similar to the piece that I wrote a little bit in that like I'm taking something that we've, you know, known and studied in the profession for a long time and trying to put it in a way that, you know, people can understand, can engage with uh, beyond, you know, kind of the scholarly audience, right? Um, and so the, the journal is meant to create a dialogue uh, between communities, between activists and between, uh, you know, thinkers, right? Uh, scholars and, um, you know, thinkers of all stripes, really. Um, and so that's sort of the, the mission, I guess, the, the core mission of the journal um, is to think about ways that our scholarship can better inform our activism and think about ways that our activism can better inform yeah. our scholarship, right? Because there's some disconnected point. nonsense going on here. Um, and it, it's harmful, to be honest. Um, you know, and that's not the kind of thing that is going to give us a stable, uh, better, more equitable world, right? Um, and so we, you know, are part of this much larger movement, right, um, to to create and foster uh, engaged scholarship, um, you know, and that's really, that's really the goal uh, in, in terms of uh, our work. Well, you know, and I see this more and more, I think, especially under uh, with younger academics who are kind of coming up through here. It's like, you know, I remember um, when when I was kind of going on to my doctoral work um, in composition and rhetoric was kind of the field that I was studying is when mm -hmm. labor issues were front and center and a lot of it was happening there. So the old guard, and the old school, you know, it was still locked in the kind of monastic traditions of the academia, right? Yeah. And we're coming out of here as kind of like watching the right, you know, the doubling of numbers of adjuncts or percentage of adjuncts, which only got yeah. worse since then. Um, um, and having that kind of mentality, this really kind of labor focus of needed to have that as integral to what we're doing and seeing scholars such as yourself now kind of coming up really kind of embedded in a lot of these movements and connected with a lot of these movements and seeing scholarship as, you know, this kind of, you know, like you said, right? I mean, scholarship informs the movement, movement conforms a scholarship, and this becomes right. a symbiotic relationship, which I think is what all movements need. And, you know, just to give a plug to this too, as well as like, so folks, especially who've been you know, listening to this show for a long, uh, for a long time, if you look at some of the recent stuff that's come out in the activist history review there's an article whitewashing and power conservatives enforcing erasures and censorship another one on we need crt to understand the midwest too that's a great piece on toledo um go check that out too as well and conflating crt and equity school board members perspectives from the front line if there couldn't be something more relevant than that to what has been happening right in our own backyards right now i can't think of something so um do check out um this work of the activist history review it's excellent um scholarship and all 
also um, part of the movement in my mind. So, I appreciate that. Oh, you got it. So listen, so let's like dive into this. Now, be, what are the, just so people understand a little bit how you're coming at this. Let me read the first paragraph of this because I think, you know, let, let's not sure. beat around. The, you know, it's like, you know, don't pull yeah. no punches. Right. You know, let's here you go right, right off the stop. So when Republicans block the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, um, Advancement Act on January 19th, 2022, they remove the last safety net preventing the U.S.'s plummet toward authoritarianism. As a result, we are at this moment in a state of freefall. The culmination of a state level legislative um, and enforcement landscape that directly mirrors Jim Crow or as fascism scholar Jason Stanley recently put it, quote, America is now in fascism's legal phase, unquote, although we do not have ways of fighting back, uh, although we do have ways, I'm sorry, of fighting back the situation is dire. I mean, I do think that you captured the gravity of where we're at right now. So take us through this piece a little bit um, about how you set it up and look at some of these historical examples to shed light a little bit, at least on some of the dynamics that we're looking at today. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I, you know, and many other observers who do similar kinds of work um, saw over the summer um, are very similar types of bills um, today uh, passed by Republican state legislatures um, that we saw during the Jim Crow era. Um, and the really important thing to take away here, um, I know we tend to think of Jim Crow as being in the past. One, it's not. Um, it actually continues to shape uh, the way that our, our Congress works, right? Uh, if you hate the filibuster, you actually hate something that is mostly an artifact of Jim Crow. Uh, right. If, if you hate uh, right. sort of the way that some of our courts work or, you know, some of the tricks of mass incarceration, those were invented um, largely under Jim Crow. Right. And so we have vestiges of this still with us, this horrible behemoth, um, even though it's now, you know, 120 ish years, um, you know, since it was, uh, you know, solidified at the end of the 1890s. Um, but what's really disturbing here, uh, again, you know, we're thinking about this at like the grassroots level. And I love the way you describe kind of the view from like Bucks County as being like, this is where activism is happening, right? Because that is where activism happened, right? During the Jim Crow era. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the white supremacists, uh, white conservatives uh, were able to pass a number of bills uh, that kept black Americans from voting. Um, they had already used terrorist tactics um, to accomplish that in much of the deep South. Um, but there were pockets uh, where black men continued to vote uh, into the 1890s. Um, so famously, uh, Robert Smalls, uh, who I mentioned in the yeah. piece, um, he protests this legislation as an obvious attempt um, after a series of failed attempts uh, to disenfranchise Black Americans. Um, you know, he was a formerly enslaved person, right, um, helped pass laws in the state legislature, you know, through the mid to late 19th century. Um, and here he is, uh, you know, at the end of the 19th century, the end of the 1800s, being disenfranchised being himself, you know, uh, restricted from voting uh, with the majority of Black South Carolinians. Um, the result of that was that in the, in the 1960s, um, you know, there were counties across the Deep South where there were Black majorities with zero Black registered voters. Right. Um, these laws were incredibly effective. Um, and what that meant was that, you know, there was no democratic way for activists to engage, right? Um, and if we think about kind of the early civil rights movement, like 
we're talking about people putting their bodies on the line because they can't vote. They can't change the laws, right? And so we hear this mantra sometimes like in white America, well, if you don't like it, right? Then, then just change the law, vote for someone else, right? Wait for the next election. No, like that's not how that happened, right? That's not how we got to this point. And it's a very delicate thing, right? Um, and so we have this, this unfortunate moment now that I do think mirrors uh, the Jim Crow era uh, where, you know, unfortunately we are seeing uh, sort of the, a push towards mass disenfranchisement. Um, again, a treatment of, you know, in the case of the president, right, a uh, democratic politician as sort of just like intrinsically illegitimate. Doesn't matter how many people certify the votes, you know, how many counties, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Because at the end of the day, um, you know, white conservatives consider those candidates, uh, consider those policies to be simply intrinsically un-American. 100%. And I look at, you know, a couple things in what you just said there, like number one is that there was this window, you know, and I'm so glad that we're finally at a point where we're starting to people are starting to shine a light back on reconstruction and reclaim that period of history, because I'll tell you, um, you know, if it, uh, it this was something that was completely absent from my own education. Right. Same. Until kind of much later. Um, yeah. And the fact that, you know, scholars are now paying attention to reconstructions as this moment in time when we had a shot. Right. I mean, there was a shot at a kind of truly multiracial democracy and there were remarkable things that took place. And the important thing that I've been taking away from a lot of the work that's been coming out around around Reconstruction has been Reconstruction was a like the the utopian vision. I, don't, I want to I I'll put small you utopia on that one. It <laughs> sure. was, you know, it was kind of like the looking out of that and say, we have an opportunity here to do something truly radical. Right. Mm -hmm. And truly kind of like multiracial democracy that would just kind of set a whole new standard. And it was there. It did. It wasn't just an idea. It actually existed and was taking steps forward slowly and it got rolled back. Right. right. And the fact that it got rolled back is also points to, you know, it puts pressure upon this narrative that, you know, the arc of history is always bending towards justice. Right. Sure. It doesn't bend towards justice on its own. Yeah. Right. And I think you illustrate that really well in saying, like, look, the same kind of dynamics we have now were happening back then. And the, the white supremacists back then were as savvy in basically being very careful in couching what they were doing in non-explicitly racist language, right? right? As a way to get around a lot of the new laws, but to have an effect that was going to disenfranchise these folks. And the same dynamic, again, you draw that parallel really well in this piece is existing now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's incredibly dangerous when we think about like the span of time, right? That Jim Crow was in effect, and also what it took to dislodge Jim Crow, right? Totally. Yeah, and and so this is something that we do not want to happen, right? Um, but unfortunately, like this is also something that it does seem like the GOP is hell bent on making happen at the state and local level by suppressing free speech, by passing these various uh, voter restriction laws designed to make it much harder to vote, designed to make it a little scarier to vote, right? Yes. Designed to make it a little bit more frightening to go out into the street, right? Is someone going to run you over, right? Uh, is Are you going to get arrested? Which is not legal in Florida, right? right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, and so there are these states of heightened risk that make all of us think, you know, twice before we do something like that. I, you know, I taught in high school for a long time. I, you know, I teach uh, undergrad uh, university now. Um, and I just, I think back to my time then and what it would be like to teach now under this sort of 
anti-CRT hysteria. And I, I'm going to be honest, like I had parents say some absolutely wild things to me after Barack Obama was elected. I started teaching in 2008, right? And like, whoa. Um, and I, I can only imagine what teachers are dealing with now. Yeah. And to think about like, all right, well, what do I assign now, right? What do I say in class? Like, I don't want to wind up on the news, right? Nobody wants that, you know? But at the same time, like, I think we're reaching a point, and I think many of us are realizing that, right? Some of us later to the game than others. I would include myself in that category, right? That if we don't do this thing now, right? If we don't, like, step up and, you know, speak out and make a difference now, like, it, it may be too late. Absolutely. And so as... There's two examples that you've given here that I want to kind of dig into a little bit because I think they do sure. illustrate things very well. Like, can you tell that story about what took place in kind of Louisiana back in 1872? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think we see the dynamic exactly as you were just describing it and that kind of the creeping of violence, right, um, and the lack of consequences for, you know, those perpetrators of that violence. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so this is the McHenry uh, gubernatorial election um, in 1872. Um, and essentially, like nutshell version, what happened is the white conservative candidate refused to concede the election. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and so what they wound up doing was creating a bunch of sort of like paramilitary wings. They created a sort of a shadow government. And, you know, I mean, the it, white it, league. Right? That's the exactly white right. League. The white league. Yeah, they weren't very subtle. Uh, no points no. for subtlety, um, but but definitely points for racist terrorism. Uh, they enacted that a great deal. Uh, they staged several unsuccessful coup attempts, um, and they eventually, you know, because they are allowed to walk free after every coup attempt, they eventually sort of figured out a way to to make it a successful coup attempt. And so, in 1874, they do overthrow the state government. Um, the U.S. Army comes in and restores the state government a couple days later, right? Um, but I think this shows them, at, again, at the local level, you know, all they have to do is remove office holders, right? Um, and so they do that, right? And so they, act, they organize uh, coup attempts now at the local level, at the county level, or we, in Louisiana, we see the parish, right? But same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and they remove all the office holders. They kill a lot of them, right? There's a really famous... A massacre actually um, in North Louisiana, the Colfax massacre, um, which is built on this model of removing local office holders um, and, you know, making it impossible for multiracial democracy to function um, because there was no one cracking down on this, um, you know, by the mid 1870s, the, the US government um, had essentially kind of given up on enforcing its own laws. And so you get this really famous ruling actually in the wake of the Colfax massacre um, that says essentially, and it's something I mentioned in the piece that, you know, although, you know, maybe, um, you know, these massacreers, right, the people who carried out the massacre, these white supremacists, maybe they were, um, you know, violating people's civil rights, but they were doing so as private citizens. And so violating someone's, you know, civil rights as private citizens, um, doesn't violate uh, the First Amendment to freedom of speech, doesn't violate the 14th Amendment, you know, that guarantees citizenship rights, right? Um, and so what winds up happening then is the Supreme Court itself rules essentially that the Constitution can't be applied to white supremacists engaging in white supremacist activity. Absolutely wild stuff. So this is, and this is what's, if I, I don't know how to pronounce this exactly. This is the 1876 ruling, the, the Krushank or the Krushank? Yeah. The Krushank ruling. Yeah. I'll have to, I have to say to you, when I read that, 
in the wake of what just took place in the Supreme Court, right, yeah. allowing kind of like basically abortion bans in Texas, right, um, like completely overriding constitutionally protected rights, right, um, by saying as long as it's vigilantes carrying out the um, carrying out these yeah. things, um, then it's fine. The echoes were haunting, yeah. right, from this, and I guess you know again. I think people who listen to this show kind of know enough when we're talking about white supremacy, we're talking about that entire structure. We're not talking just about a racial hierarchy. We're still talking about a gender hierarchy, right? Yeah. That is embedded in a very particular form of say racialized capitalism. But anyway, right. so we'll put that to the side. But I mean, I found that haunting to see yeah. those two things next to one another. Right. And we've seen a number of laws since the Texas law um, that follow a similar, what I call the Cruikshank logic. Um, essentially California did one with um, the guns, um, you know, this is really bad, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this makes all of us, you know, as people who hopefully, you know, derive protections from the Constitution, makes all of us a little bit less safe um, every time uh, it happens. Well, and I'm also thinking about the importance of this history coming back. I'm thinking, uh, you know, Ian Milheiser's work on the Supreme Court at yeah. all, right? So he, so he was the first one that, um, I, he used to be on the Rick Smith show a lot, and I used to listen to him there, okay. and I read his books and things like this, and um. And that was the first one that disabused me of the narrative about the Supreme Court being the heroes, right? right? Because, you know, I grew up, you know, I, I was I was born 19, 1969, right? Mm -hmm. I grew up in the in the wake of the Supreme Court rulings that kind of like, you know, justified Supreme, you know, justified civil rights that were seeing these kind of advancements. And so the Supreme Court was was very much seen as the arbiter of justice, right? And, you know, in the kind of capital J, J justice, I think is the way we'd understand it in this conversation. Sure. And so... Um, and that has like, you know, it over and it also kind of reinforced the narrative of progress, right? That progress is always happening, that it's, it's getting better, it's getting better, it's getting better. When you know, Ian Milheiser and others kind of point to the fact that for the majority of its history, the Supreme Court was not like not, you know, on the side of the people. Right. right. Um, and we see this kind of like happening right here. And so. Again, the echoes seem to be critical when we see an alignment of really right wing ideology, vigilantes kind of carrying out kind of intimidation tactics in street fighting and yeah. and now a Supreme Court that is packed with right wing radicals. Right. Yeah. That's all lining up in a very, very concerning uh, kind of assembly, if you will. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, just to, to echo that point, right, the Supreme Court has been sort of like, I guess, for most of its history, a, a safety net for white supremacy and a safety net for the people people who already have power, right? Um, and to allow them to expand that power, you know. And um, so I, you know, I think about like Buck v. Bell um, or Williams v. Mississippi. Buck v. Bell is the one that uh, legalizes eugenics um, and forced sterilization. Uh, Williams v. Mississippi is the one that says as long as there's no racist language, if it's a race neutral language, uh, then you can take away uh, black Americans right to vote, no big deal, right? Uh, Korematsu, of course, that justifies Japanese internment. Right. The Supreme Court has a really, 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 really bad track record. Um, <laughs> and we need a couple more realies in there, right? I was gonna um, say, it's so, like, yeah, I'm gonna add a couple. Yeah, and, and so this argument that like, it's no big deal, like that stuff can't be constitutional, I'm going to be honest, like it drives me up the wall because like the the very worst things that you could think of, the Supreme Court has already affirmed. Right. And is more than poised and capable to do that again. Right. Um, and so what we need to do is to prevent it from getting to them. Right. And to prevent, you know, them from from being able to make things even worse. Right. Prevent these laws from being passed in the first place. 
um, or to override them, as I suggested, you know, the beginning of that piece, you know, where you're reading uh, in the opener with the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill. Um, we need to do something else, right? The courts are not going to save us. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, the points that you make in this piece, and I've, I'm, I've kind of, I've got these notes on the side um, that it's not exactly your language, but one of the things mm -hmm. that I saw as a really interesting kind of point that you bring up here is that there's a difference between giving a right to vote and a right to wield power, mm. right? And I thought that was such a important distinction um, in terms of how we think about w what's actually happening. So the idea, you've got this, you know, I, I, I don't know, professional middle-class liberalism version of the way that we think about change. Well, we have the right to vote, so we've got to get more people out to vote. And you even say yeah. in here, like, you know, there's this kind of, there's, there's this sense out there that we could out-organize them, right? That we can just overpower yes. like them with people kind of that are flooding to the polls. But right. that assumes like this kind of equal playing field, right? The kind of mythology of the market where everybody's just kind of an equal individual player, as opposed to recognizing that the system is not necessarily set up simply to to prevent individuals from voting it's to prevent particular people from wielding power right right and those are those are yes they're connected but those are distinctly different things so that we can point to well look there's a black person on the school board what are you saying about this you know they got elected mm -hmm. just like everyone else but if you have a structure that is set up to disenfranchise the vast majority of those folks to say that yes you can get a represent representative there but you're never going to wield power over an increasingly shrinking minority that is getting all the more kind of like comfortable with violence sure yeah, and I mean, you know, just to, to emphasize that point, right, like in Jim Crow, throughout Jim Crow, like the U.S. had elections. They had elections all over the place, right? Um, those elections did not matter, like not in the way that we think of sort of competitive multiracial democracy, um, you know, eliciting uh, results that might empower people. That simply didn't happen, right? Um, you know, and so we, there is this possibility, right, that like we can still have elections, you know, we still have this, you know, many of us will still be able to access the vote. Um, and yet that is exactly the circumstance um, of Jim Crow and, and produced absolutely devastating results. So if that's the case, then you see this now. So, again, just so that we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. So when you see the same kind of dynamic at play now. Right. And you, I mean, call this out as saying, you know, what's the word you use here? The situation is dire. dire. So how would you sketch out that direness? that's a word <laughs> like yeah, sure yeah. um yeah i mean i guess you know there's a number of things right that we are told um we have the ability to do to keep those in power accountable to us as citizens as voters as residents however you want to frame it um one is we have the right to vote but that right to vote is being restricted right okay so we're gonna have to go to box two all right, box two, well, we have the, the right to assemble and the right to protest, right? That's going to put some, some pressure on politicians, right? Those people in power. Well, that right to assemble is also being curtailed, right? Aha, but we have the right to, to speech and, and press, right? And so we can write very searing critiques of those people in power who we cannot protest in space, who we cannot, you know, meaningfully vote to, to overthrow, right? And yet, we also see those things being restricted, right, in the anti-CRT bills, right? And right. I would be very surprised uh, if we didn't see that. Remember, the first bills, of course, only apply to, you know, like kindergartens or whatever, right? And now we're seeing them apply to, you know, where I teach, right, at, at universities, right, and, and every school in between, right? 
Um, and I would be very, very, very surprised if we don't see that, then they're already trickling out to libraries, right? Um, to see that, you know, in the public square. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate. Um, but, but I do think, again, in terms of the historical precedents, you know, that um, white conservatives have, have pushed as far as they can possibly go. Um, and I would not be surprised to see that sort of being the next plane of the struggle, uh, unfortunately. Well, so so let me get your take on this then, because yeah. one of the things uh, that you kind of as you're kind of pointing us in kind of a direction towards the end of this piece. Right. You know, I, I mean, again, I like what you say here. While we work toward improving our existing institutions and hold them accountable, we can also embrace a culture of mutual aid and public good against which white conservatives cannot prevail. Right. And you go on to kind of mention some of that history and so on. And I'm with you 100 percent on this. And yet my concern is this is that we don't have that infrastructure the mm. social movement infrastructure and i'm not saying that it you know there was a pure time in the past yeah. but i look at like this is just an example to take it it's not specific to what we're talking about here really tonight but it's been sticking in my mind all day where yeah. um nancy pelosi goes up and gives a press conference right um about the situation in in ukraine and she gets a she gets a, a question from a journalist. It says, "Well, look, we're seeing these COVID numbers rise, right, across the world right now. Again, with this new variant, right, and we know that there the funds for supporting COVID mitigation, for um, for care, for uh, vaccines, for you know, you name it, everything that all the mm -hmm. protocols that we've had in place, all that money is expiring, and so that's all going away. So, what about that?" And Nancy Pelosi's response to that was like, why are you bringing that up when people are dying in Ukraine? <laughs> and the journalist is like kind of taken back and says, well, people are still dying of COVID. Right. And it and what it said to me in that moment, right, more than the specifics of what was said was the dynamic of the Democratic Party leadership right now, where they're kind of like, well, we're going to move on to the next thing. And I think the message from a lot of people that are getting, you know, that are trying to address this stuff at the local level are seeing a, you know, our supposed party that we have to we have to work within this two party system at this point. Right. Sure. Having to kind of like saying these are folks that claim to be in support of voting rights. And yet when they when it goes away, when they lose the vote, they throw up their hands, and they move on to the next thing. They claim to want to make sure that we're protected in terms of covid. But when it becomes politically inconvenient for them, they turn to war. Right. I mean, it's issue after issue after after issue. Um, we look at, OK, supposedly we have an existential crisis in terms of climate change. Where is yeah. that even on the table in terms of the discussion? And so and. So it seems like the broad based left, right, or at least the official narrative on the left, right, um, you know, again, really broad brush here, doesn't seem to be an agenda, <laughs> whereas the right wing has an agenda, has yeah. a media infrastructure, right, has an organizational structure so that, you know, we watched here, right, in our own backyards, that this this narrative goes national, and then the next day, it's at our backyards, Right. I mean, it shows up in the school boards literally two days after it shows up on Fox News or shows up on own, like the own network. So, I mean, given that context, I mean, pardon me if I'm I, if I'm a little concerned about our shot here. <laughs> right. So, I, I mean, and again, I, I don't think that, you know, you don't paint any kind of rosy picture in your piece about like what yeah. the past was and so on. 
But right. are there certain kind of directions that you can see, like based upon what had to happen before and what we need to be getting ourselves in a position to think about moving forward to achieve these things? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a difficult question, yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially when we factor in, um, you know, social media and the ways that algorithms and things can be controlled. I mean, they, there really is a way to uh, to keep people from disseminating information uh, for states that are really committed to doing that, right? Um, and so my understanding is that we see this now in, in Russia, right? Yes. Um, you know, and our state has those precise tools available to them, right? Um, you know, and so there is, you know, a very real danger that perhaps like, you know, we're all, you know, we all turn into Sisyphus, right? We're all like <laughs> in this one man struggle oh, against this giant boulder, right? You yeah. know, um, you know, and so that's, that's possible, you know. Um, and in terms of grassroots organizing, that complicates things, right? If the state, um, you know, if, if its whole power um, is vested uh, behind a, a white supremacist movement, right? That, that becomes a very dangerous situation. And so part of the reason I wrote this piece is I, I just, you know, we need to not get to that point, right? Um, and, and yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think part of what I hope to illustrate in the end there is like, there are other alternatives, right? And that's true. Um, those alternatives are really hard and, you know, kind of, um, you know, vulnerable to to state violence, right? Um, and so if we use, you know, maybe one of the more famous examples um, of groups who leverage mutual aid in the Black Panther Party, right? You know, we, many of us probably, you know, in our education encounter them as like the Black people with guns, right? Um, but, but in fact, you know, the majority of their activity was distributing breakfasts, you know, uh, to underprivileged children, distributing groceries uh, to underprivileged communities, right? Uh, providing, you know, childcare, providing health clinics. They founded the first ambulance system, right? In, Crazy, in Pittsburgh, right? actually, right? Um, you know, because you used to call up the hospital and they'd be like, oh, what neighborhood are you in? Nah, we're, we're good, right? And hang up on you. Um, you know, and so we see a robust, you know, mutual aid program there. Many of those programs uh, that were created by the Panthers then get co-opted by the state mm -hmm. while the state is waging a total war on the Black Panther Party, right? And so sometimes, you know, with my graduate students, I'll kind of, you know, be talking about these sorts of issues and, and especially um, that type of activism in the 1930s or in the 1960s um, or even today, right? And, and sort of the, the thing that I tell them, I, I don't know, is that like the fastest way um, to, you know, get the FBI to knock on your doors to engage in mutual aid. You know, and that's, I mean, that's a bit of hyperbole, but like only a bit, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we think about the FBI, like assassinating people for like organizing across racial groups um, in a, you know, the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago, right? Fred Hampton, you know, uh, if you're unfamiliar, like Judas and the Black Messiah, you can look it up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can watch, it's a good movie. Um, you know, those things are hard and dangerous, right? And it is much better for us uh, if we can, um, you know, make, I don't know, Congress people's lives just as miserable as possible uh, until they pass some kind of voting rights protection, right? Um, that's like a bare bones basic uh, at this point um, for staving off some kind of um, authoritarian decline or collapse. Um, is, it, is it possible though to, you know, create sort of a, a mutual aid solidarity movement, especially at the local level, right? We saw 
something rapid like that happened in between 1966 and 1968. Um, just a massive growth, right? In a very short span of time. That sort of thing can happen, right? Um, and it can put enormous pressure on the state, especially if, and I was, you know, at a, an event, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago or something, where I suggested, right, like perhaps the opportunity for us, you know, as leftists and, you know, as people who are committed to fighting uh, authoritarianism and fascism, right, um, is to engage in mutual aid um, in the food sector, right? And to shut down like various distribution or, you know, uh, harvesting, processing um, sectors for a period of time, right? Like we don't want to create, no, no one wants to create like, a, you know, a, a vestige of mass suffering, right? Like nobody wants that, right? But, you know, if, if, if that is what is left in terms of like the organizational opportunity, there is, there's an opportunity there, right? You know, and we've learned from COVID how vulnerable these systems are, yeah, you know? Exactly. Um, that's, again, none of this is good. It would be really great if white supremacists would just chill the fuck out, right? <laughs> I, that? I don't know if I can say it. I just did. Yeah, but like, no, it... <laughs> right? like, please stop. Just just take a deep breath. I don't know. Go for a walk. I, I don't know, you know, but like. And keep on um, walking, please. please stop you're trying to murder people and destroy multiracial democracy. That would be really great, you know. And so we are putting like in an awkward position, right, where we have to like come up with really radical outside of the box ideas, right? Because at the state and local level, white supremacists have increasingly organized yes. and increasingly foreclosed opportunities. You know, so I'm not like, oh, mutual aid is going to solve all of our problems, right? But like, I think that does illustrate like where we're at, where we may be headed, right? Um, but then also like possible sort of last ditch opportunities that can be successful, but are not easy. No, and I think that, you know, this idea about mutual aid, you know, I grew up in kind of like punk rock anarchist communities, right? So mutual nice. aid was basically essentially like a core yeah. value belief, right? <laughs> like yeah. a circle, right? And so, and but and that does make a whole ton of sense to me. And, and, you know, and one of the things that I see happening, and it seems to be, you know, this is not just here in Pennsylvania, but I'm seeing this happening to communities across the country. I mean, even if you look at, you know, I mean, the whole Starbucks unionization stuff has gotten a lot of has gotten a lot of traction, right, um, in terms of like a lot of eyes on it. I mean, that's it. I mean, even though we're just talking about a very kind of beginning movement, right? Um, yeah. It's gotten some great, great coverage. Anyways, but to see that there's the best stuff that is happening right now is happening at the grassroots level. Like I see right. what's happening around school boards, right? And it yeah. is parents, you know, parents and community members who basically would go to school board meetings to make sure that, you know, the kids are getting what they need or what are the volunteer opportunities that are coming up or, hey, this issue came up in the school. And that's how they understood what was happening at school boards. And then right. walking in to find them, these are these ideological hand-to-hand -hand combat spaces now. Um, yeah. And it's produced some really amazing, say, school board candidates that are kind of basically never thought about running in their lives, right? Had been active in a bunch of other things. They know we're going to run for this is important. And some organizing efforts that have grown out of that. Same things happen in the unionization efforts. But there's also a big gap between that kind of organizing level and any kind of, say, official organized, say, political organization that's happening at the, you know, the other broader level. So if you just take the Democratic Party, for example, you got, you know, you still have this kind of consultant logic that's coming in mm -hmm. to kind of instruct candidates how to run when the candidates sure. are like, no, that's not what we need to do. We need to fight these people because they're talking kind of some really crazy white supremacist stuff. And the Democratic Party right. is saying, well, that doesn't poll well. 
right? There's still that kind of gap here. Um, and it's almost as if you have to take that leap of faith in my mind, right? And the organizing leap of faith is to say, you know what? They can say whatever they're going to say, but we're going to organize on our own, right? That if they want us, right, the best candidates with the people on the ground that are, have all the door knockers, then they're going to have to listen back to us too as well. And in the meantime, we're going to have to do that deep organizing, the deep canvassing in between mm -hmm. elections, right, to build up that kind of, you know, the cultural and social, you know, um, capacity. It seems to be like anything else. We've got to exercise these muscles if we're going to be able to use them. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, you know, and I just want to emphasize, like, it was Jen Psaki, <laughs> the, uh, the press secretary, who said that, uh, you know, that, that we can out-organize, right, and we can outvote voter suppression, right, um, on behalf of the administration, right, because she's the mouthpiece of the administration. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where they're at. Um, and that's not going to cut it, right? Um, telling people that things are already good and we're going to keep them mostly the same. Again, like when people are, I don't know, struggling to pay rent and, you know, they're they're out here telling you, and even some of them are like supporting overt white supremacists, very dangerous people, right? And they're out here telling you things are not good, right? Like, all right, then we're going to need to not just message test something, right? We need to actually like stand for and propose something, right? Yes. And I mean, you know, in some ways, like we actually saw that in, you know, the 2020 election, right? With like the student loan forgiveness, right? And things like that. Um, and with the the two thousand dollar, which then turned into a fourteen hundred dollar check, you know that whole thing, right? Um, you know, but but the Democratic Party for like you know a few minutes, like yep. stood for something, like really stood for something, you know, um, when they had those two runoff races, right? And and it, I mean, they had to stand for something. Um, and then you know the, I guess it's the donor class. I, I don't know, you know, um, how the sausage is made. I I mean, we all read the things and have some ideas. Right. But, um, you know, like standing for things wins elections. Right. You know, I mean, there's work involved. Right. Um, you know, there's there's organizing, there's canvassing, um, you know, there's all of that stuff that, that goes into that. Right. But. Those things matter. Yeah. You can't just you can't you can't means test your messaging. I mean, as ridiculous as that sounds. No, but I, and I think that it's, the, you know, it's the, one of those things where when you stand for something, Right. And it's a vision that gets us beyond like the pit that we're in and says, yeah. we've got this horizon that we're working for that people get behind it. Um, and then on the flip side of it, then if you're just willing to abandon that thing, <laughs> right, right. Um, because it's inconvenient at a particular moment, that also can can double back and kind of hurt you seriously, and especially in terms of, you know, exercising power at the federal level or so on. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. I know we're running up on time here too, but let's so look forward here. We're heading into the kind of 2022 election, right? And, you know, I know you're a historian, right? So, uh, and not the, like the forecaster of the future here, but yeah. as you're kind of, kind of looking forward and some <laughs> the, the kind of things that you see, kind of happening, what are your expectations of what we're going to see over the next kind of several months, even the next couple of years, um, if, you know, or given the, the the current trajectories that we're seeing? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, um, you know, and I mean, there's all different kinds of ways to think about this, right? But I mean, I guess the way that I'm thinking about it right now, you know, and maybe Nancy Pelosi is helping me think about this, right? Is it like... <laughs> You know, in, in some ways, like some of us, especially those of us who are comfortable right now, we're distracted, um, you know, and rightfully so. What's happening in Ukraine is horrible. You know, it's, it's absolutely devastating um, and it's it's painful to watch and painful to think about. Right. Um, and yet. 
at at this very moment, right? At the local, at the state level, um, you know, white conservatives are not distracted. You know, they are out there proposing bills. They are out there passing restrictive legislation. Um, you know, and that's very, very dangerous. Um, and this is just simply not the time to to be. I don't know. Um, and I guess we all do this, right? But like retweeting or sharing posts or whatever, like about Ukraine, like I think that we all know what's happening there at this point, right? Um, it's time to to phone a friend. Um, and, and maybe that involves like also sending aid to Ukraine, right? Like there's there's things that we can right. do, right? Um, but that involves us like really um, getting dirty, getting getting up to our elbows in it um, and getting involved. Um, I, I don't I don't know what happens next, to be honest with you. I know historically, and of course, I'm sure we've all heard this, at least the headline, right? Mm -hmm. That like the opposition party always wins in the midterms, right? Um, and I mean, we do know that, you know, there are reasons, uh, in fact, to, to hold, critique this administration, right? Critique their handling of COVID, uh, critique their handling uh, of some other things, right? Um, I'm very concerned about the, the anti-inflation uh, policy uh, that seems totally disconnected from yes. people's actual fucking wages, right? 100%. You know, we're going to actually pull more money out, you know, and that's, I mean, we do everything backwards, right? Like we should actually just be giving, if we really wanted people to be better off, we would lend that money directly to people instead of to like banks and bajillionaires. 100%. Right? Yep. Yeah. Um, but we're, you know, we're entering a, a period, you know, and, and it's, it's devastating to think about because of COVID, right? And because of how long we've been dealing with all this shit, right? But uh, we're entering a period um, where there we may be belt tightening, right? And in those types of periods, again, um, you know, the opposition party does well. Uh, the Republican Party has a vision. Uh, it is a white supremacist, racist, racist dystopia, but it's a vision, um, you know. And um, the I, I don't know the the Democratic Party um, as of this moment does not have a corresponding vision. That's not to say they don't have sort of you know, talking points and, and things that they propose, ideas, right? Um, but it, it's it's not, they, they don't have a culture in the way that they, they yes, Republicans have right. a white supremacist culture, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of infighting and things like that. Um, you know, and um, if you, on the, on the other side, right, if you, if you um, get Donald Trump to say something, right, um, 100% of Republicans are going to be saying that exact same thing, you know, it's, it's, you're, your OAAN or whatever example, or your Fox News example, right? They're, they're gonna be saying that the next day, right? There's a culture there, um, you know, and, and there's a very tight uh, political organization there. It's it's dangerous. Uh, it's a dangerous time, you know, for all of us and, and for uh, for many of us more than others, right? Um, and yeah, that that's that. I get is that a prediction? I don't know, <laughs> but but um, you know, we have to get our shit together really quick. Yeah, 100%. And I think that, you know, um, you know, as you said, you know, the situation is dire. And I think yeah. that's, uh, um, that's important for I think, for all of us to hold on to, right? Um, if yeah. all, and if anything that we kind of take out, you know, the way I've been really increasingly thinking about what's happening in Ukraine, right, is by, by saying is like, it's the same dynamic. Yeah, right. It's the same dynamic in a different context, right, on a much more brutal um, scale. But it's the logic is identical to the kind of stuff that we're facing here. Mm -hmm. um, and so I see these struggles as linked. Right. Um, and I think that we're talking about the situation is dire. Um, I think we can look at, you know, kind of examples of what how bad it can get. <laughs> right. right. 
Um, and and also, you know, to kind of look to those folks who are doing also amazing organizing um, and to, to support folks uh, on the local level, any plants, any chance they get. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, William, I, I really appreciate your time tonight. This has been a fantastic discussion. Um, and uh, do check out his piece. It's fascism's legal phase has begun. Threats of white vigilante violence are real. That's over in truthout.org. And make sure you go over and check out the Activist History Review. You can check that out at activisthistory.com. Great stuff over there. Um, William, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And uh, man, onwards in the fight. Thank you. Likewise, solidarity. Solidarity, brother. All right, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. I want to thank you all for tuning in tonight and want to make sure that you're looking ahead. Join us this Friday where uh, we're going to be doing the breakdown of the good, the bad, and the ugly in this week's uh, politics. It looks like it's going to be a doozy of a week. And we'll let you know what we got coming up from next Monday. Um, We've got a couple irons in the fire. Um, We'll kind of let you know that um, in the week coming ahead. So um, in the meantime, you can help support the work that we do here right here at raging chicken by heading on over to patreon.com slash rc press and you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month and if you are at our youtube channel or you know you're listening to it right now head on over to our youtube channel if you're listening to our podcast um, make sure you subscribe to the channel um like this stream and hit that notification notification bell so you know every time that we go live um this has been kevin mahoney and here with uh, william horn thanks again william and we'll talk to you soon All right. Thank you. All right, everybody. uh, We're getting out of here for the night. Um, Hope you have a good one. Um, Spring has sprung. The the, uh, solstice has passed. Onwards with the fight. Looking ahead to the primaries and the elections ahead. We'll see you soon. See you.